0: We continue our series tonight. I think we have probably three more sessions to go before the year of uh, Wednesday night teaching times is over. So they'll all be on this topic, namely racial harmony. Let's pray as we start. Father in heaven, I want so much for you to teach us Strengthen us, guide us, purify us, make us strategic in our individual lives, our corporate lives, our social lives, cultural lives, church as a body, groups in the church, all of us, Lord, to learn the implications of belonging to Jesus for relationships among different ethnic, racial groups. Lord, I pray that you'd come. Guide me as I think this through and even what angles to come at. So help us tonight to understand more of what is happening in our land and our city and what your word has to say about it. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I want to start, before I get to the Word, by uh, reading a quote from an editorial that came out of a newspaper today. Insight News, it's called. It's a black newspaper that uh, Noel and I get. And um, I want uh, each time we do this for you to taste something of the perceptions of the black community, or I probably should say part of the black community, since we all need to be aware there are black communities, that there's not one black viewpoint any more than there's one white viewpoint. And so when you hear this, don't say that's what all African-Americans think. Say that's what some think, because it's uh, pretty negative. But I want you to know that um, in the world we live in right now, Many, many perceive, I would guess most, minorities perceive things are not what they ought to be. If you live in the white majority culture, you can ignore that fact. You don't even feel it. You don't have to be aware of it. It doesn't seem like it's the case because your life is flowing along without any hitch. This is about the whole issue of um, racial profiling, which has been front burner issue in the news in Minnesota for quite a while. And uh, this man writes, uh, after he talked to Linda Berglin, who was going to try to rally the legislation over at the Capitol, I figured right then and there that this particular bill stood about a snowball's chance in hell of getting past the conclave of privileged, insulated white folk known as the Minnesota Legislature. So this person has a very jaundiced view of of our legislature. He says, after he goes on for a couple of paragraphs, if it seems to you I'm saying that in the hallowed halls of government where laws supposedly are passed for the public good, a bunch of well-heeled elitists got away with prostituting due process in order to sustain entrenched institutionalized racism your powers of perception are working in working order. When all was said and nothing done to rectify an obvious wrong, black, native, and Hispanic Minnesotans were still behind the eight ball. Now the little phrase in there that I won't deal with directly tonight, but in the, in the weeks to come I will try, is this phrase institutionalized racism. One of the books I'm reading right now called Divided by Faith, which some of you are familiar with, in chapter 4, which Dwight Perry, who's my son's professor of homiletics at Moody and who is an African-American, I had lunch with him when I was down there to speak at the Moody Founders Conference, and and he said, if you only only read one chapter, be sure to read chapter 4 in that book, which I was reading this afternoon, and it's a chapter all about the apparent inability of uh, American white evangelicals to grasp the concept of anything other than individual problems. In other words, we tend to boil everything down to individual sin. And that's absolutely right. There is individual sin, and it is probably at the root, along with Satan and his influence, uh, the biggest problem. But he said there seems to be just a constitutional blind spot. Or this guy uses the term of cultural tools. Every ethnic group has a bag of cultural tools, he said. And each bag is defective. So each group has some tools with which to interpret what's happening in the world. And when you pull out your tools and you interpret what's happening, if you don't have a tool that fits what's happening, you tend to skew it. Well, he says, missing in the toolkit, it seems like of most people like me, White evangelical Americans is the toolkit of, of corporateness or institution or sociality or whatever word. So I, I want to try to, to grow in that and see, you know, test that and see in the weeks to come. So I'll, I'll be moving toward in the next three weeks towards the issue of, of injustice expressed not because I have a bad attitude, but expressed in more institutional ways, because that seems to be something uh, the minority communities feel like a lot of people don't get. And so I picked that phrase out here just to highlight that issue that I'll be trying to to deal with. We've been laying foundations for that, and I think the Bible does have significant things to say about injustice in terms of individual perpetrations and larger manifestations. That's the first thing I wanted to do, was read an excerpt just to give you a flavor of what, uh, right now, in some parts of the black community anyway, perhaps most of it, the attitude is towards what happened with regard to racial profiling. Now, here's the second thing I want to do before we move into um, the text, which I'm going to look at tonight. If you're if you like me, you read the newspaper and uh you'll notice that what's been hot in the last week or so is the the census figures. So I wanted you to just be aware of what's happening in Minnesota in the 90s and in uh the Twin Cities in particular. So I just what I did, you can do the same thing I did. I went online to the Star Tribune uh and typed in minority population or census and just gathered these articles together and then I'm going to slap some quotes On the overhead here for you, so you can see what's happening ethnically in Minnesota. Very interesting things happened in the, in the nineties. So this is, this is what was at the top. These are direct printouts from the web pages. And so when it says published here, that was, that was what was there. So you could find these articles yourself and read the whole thing if you want. The state became more urban diverse. The state's minority population doubled in the 90s. Partly because the black population rose at a faster clip than that of any other 47 states whose census figures have been reported. Is that remarkable? Just to me, Minnesota, in terms of rate of growth, in increase in African American population is the fastest growing state, if I understand that sentence right, of all the 47 that have reported. Doesn't mean there's a a huge percentage. We'll see what those are in just a minute, both statewide and citywide. Minnesota went from 6% to 12% minority during the 90s. After a jump of similar magnitude during the 80s, most of that growth came in the metro area. Another article. Hispanic. The Hispanic population jumped 166%. To 143,000, the largest percentage jump for a minority group in Minnesota. That's the ninth fastest growth for Hispanics among the 47 states for which figures have been released this month. Hispanics can be a member of any race. They don't when you when you when you when you talk about Hispanics. Evidently, in the technical ways they talk, you can be white or black or Asian. I don't know. Can you be Asian Hispanic? I don't know. The dislocation between Hispanic and race uh, it was an interesting observation to me, and I suppose there are a lot of complexities like that out there that I'm not aware of and learning as I go. So there, that's just surprising to me because I think of Hispanics as coming from southern, uh, warm, temperate climates, and I just don't expect them to gravitate here, but... Uh, I think there are reasons, probably, given our social structure and certain attitudes in Minnesota, certain welfare situations. I don't know what all the factors are that that attract uh, us to be the, what does it say, the ninth largest? Yeah, ninth fastest growing increase in Hispanics. There's a brand new, for example, Noel and I took a walk a few weeks ago down to see the new, uh you know, they're trying to renew Franklin Avenue and, and uh, Maria's restaurant is right there in just at the corner of Chicago and, and Franklin. We've eaten there several times. And and then uh, Doug Oyen, who belongs to this church, his store is right there. And so we walked in to see Doug's store. And across the hall from Doug's store is kind of a flower shop. We walk into the flower shop, and a Hispanic greets us with broken English. And uh, hello. And we get a conversation. I'm a pastor. He said, oh, let me show you something. And the back half of the store is a church. It's a Hispanic church, and, and you take you through a curtain, and there's rows of chairs there. Brand new Hispanic-speaking church, one, two, three, four blocks from our church. So, they're springing up around because, uh, I suppose, in part, there are is a growing number of Hispanics in the area. Black and Asian Pacific Islanders gain in Minnesota. Blacks and Asian Pacific Islanders recorded gains of 107% and 108% respectively, although blacks remain the state's biggest minority group, but evidently just barely now with regard to uh, Hispanics. Minnesota's black growth rate is tops among the 47 states, which you already saw, while its Asian growth rate is the fourth fastest. General diversity in Minnesota. Minnesota emerges from the new data less remarkable for its huge numbers. We don't have huge numbers in any one group as less remarkable for the huge numbers as for the diversity of its diversity. Only one other state is as finely balanced among all four major communities of color, Asians, blacks, Hispanics, Indians, That could be a positive sign. I'm still quoting here. None of these are my words. That could be a positive sign for future, experts say, as communities with a mixture of minorities sometimes can have an advantage when it comes to successful integration. So this writer is saying that spread among these four minority communities bodes well for how, perhaps, integrative efforts in Minnesota might succeed. American Indian, Minneapolis can claim the nation's seventh largest urban concentration of American Indians, the highest rank based on percentage. So not the highest in total number of American Indians, but as far as percentage of population, the highest in any racial or ethnic category for either of the Twin Cities. Because that means percentage of the group, total. Minority percent of state population. Minnesota emerges from the data as a little-of-everything state. It has some balance among all four major communities of color. Blacks, 4%. This is statewide now. We'll come to the citywide in a minute. Blacks, 4%. Asians and Hispanics, 3% each. And Indians with 1%. That sounds small, but if you live in Minneapolis, the numbers are quite different. Most major Minnesota metro areas became more integrated. Um, Minneapolis percent of black population. For comparison, the population of Minneapolis proper was 20% black or, uh, or partly black. That is people who register, I guess. You could check off. I think this was the first census in which you could check several races. If I remember reading correctly, you could just check as many as you want. And you can check, I'm white and black and Asian, because that's who your parents are. Uh, for comparison, the population of, of Minneapolis proper was 20% black or partly black. St. Paul, 13%. Duluth and Rochester, 2%. And 3% respectively. So you can see that the the reality for us here in this city where I live and where... Where we live, if you take the whole metro area into account, um, or I guess I guess it's proper. It does say proper, not the whole metro area. But in Minneapolis proper, is not four percent like the state, but but twenty percent. Segregation index in the Twin Cities. Now I don't know what this index is. Some technical way of figuring things, but I thought it was interesting what the outcome was. Logan's team considers a segregation index of eighty on the scale of 0 to 100, to be very high segregation. A ranking of 60 to 79 to be high, and a ranking of 40 to 59 is moderate. For blacks and whites in the Twin Cities, the 1990 figure was 63.52, so that puts them in the 60 to 79 high levels of segregation. It's now 57 to 83. 57.83, 57.83, which puts it here as moderate. A larger shift than most cities saw. The index is arrived at by determining how separately the races live for one another. Now, I'd like to stop here and get comments just to see what your your perception of this is. I I don't have any insight to answer questions here. But I'll bet others have, anybody want to make any comments about these statistics? Do they seem to skew anything or do they, do they mislead or well, how would you supplement these to make them help our awareness to be what it ought to be living in Minnesota? Anybody want to comment at this point? Okay. Not, okay, yeah, Kenny. Linguistic. Versus Latino and versus Chicano. Huh. If you use Hispanic, this linguistic category. And would would Latino and Chicano be racial? Yeah. So you can't be a black Latino. Well you can be mixed. You can be mixed, sure. <laughs> but those are two separate Racial categories. Okay. That's very helpful. Did you hear that? Hispanic, the term Hispanic is a linguistic category, whereas Latino, Chicano are ethnic slash racial, I guess, categories. Other clarifications or go ahead. I have not. The question is, have we seen anything for the Metro? Seven counties say or I don't I don't not in the articles I read. It's probably out there, but Scott. You know, there was a, there was a reference several times to Somalis. What did it say? I can't remember. You can do a search on Somalis on those pages and find that, those quotes, but, but I didn't. I'm trying to think whether it said, I think I remember one saying, they arrived, that the that the statistics are inaccurate, that we probably didn't get a good read on the size of that community. So my guess is that's true for a lot of this, and so we're talking real ballpark figures. Other comments or observations from anybody? Yeah. I can barely hear you. I, I heard children. Does it? I, I mean, I don't know, because wouldn't that be true for each community, white community and all the others that she's observing that children are included in these numbers? When you when you fill out your census form, honey kids are in your house, I guess, and so on. But whether that skews the percentage, maybe it skews the sense of numbers of of adults that you're dealing with in any group as you function in society. I see what you're saying. Yeah, maybe so. Wouldn't be true at Bethlehem. <laughs> Good. Helpful. Go ahead. Anything else before I move on? is the way over. Over here, I heard on the radio that this is the largest concentration of Somali people outside of Africa in the Twin Cities, you just heard on the radio. So there's a reality that impacts us, and, and I'm just thrilled with how responsive our people have been to ministry in the last several years in regard to that. They're aggressively pursuing various kinds of ministries with Somali people. If you don't know about that and you want to find out about it, uh, there's Paul Marino back there. He's right in the thick of it, and others of you are. So uh, just ask us who to talk to, and you can come to a prayer meeting that's focused on refugee ministries, which are mainly Somali, though not only. And uh, I'm very, very encouraged that we didn't get caught flat-footed on that one because people's hearts just responded. Anything else before I go to Ephesians for a little bit? Okay, don't enforce it. Uh, That's a flavor, anyway, of where we live. Now, I would have thought, you know, had you asked me a year ago, where are you going to start when you start dealing with with racial harmony, I would have said probably Ephesians 2. I'm going to start with Ephesians 2. That's the standard place to start when you talk about race relations or ethnic walls coming down, because that's right in this text. It was interesting that we sang that song, because that's in this text. Uh, but I didn't start with it precisely because it is so familiar and I wanted to save it. But I'm going to talk about it for a little bit tonight because in building a seminar, I just think to build a seminar that's going to be taught on weekends on into the future, perhaps, you just can't build it without this text. It is so basic to the issue of uh, racial harmony. And now I think I have a little clue providentially why God might have restrained my thinking about using it because it, so fundamentally relates to what's happening on Sunday morning concerning the law. Because, you know, if you would ask, any racial implications to those sermons on Sunday morning about law? Hmm, there probably are, because since everything relates to everything, but can't write, think of it right off the bat what they would be. Well, this text makes plain why this whole issue of death to the law Or the laws being, in some sense, abrogated or nullified is relevant for how ethnic groups relate to each other. So let's read this, and you'll see that right at the center. This is Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles, that's a religious, racial, cultural Different group than Jews. I don't know, I don't know how Jewishness is thought of racially. Probably not. I don't know. But they thought it was. I mean, they would think in terms of religious differences and cultural differences and we have Abraham as our father. We have Jacob, not Esau. Esau produces Edomites, and Jacob produces Jews. So it's it's lineal and it is physical, as well as cultural and religious. That's why this text is so relevant, even though, of course, blacks and, and uh, I don't know how to say Hispanics anymore, Latino and Asian and others are not here in name, but... Two very different bodies of human beings, much at odds with each other, in various ways are here. And that's why it's relevant. Therefore, remember that formerly you Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. Now, what you what you see there is animosity just oozing out. Called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. And Paul gets in his own comment here with this so-called So Jews here are calling the rest the uncircumcised because that was a ceremonial symbol of how unclean and foreign they are from Jewishness and the people of God, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. That's how much Paul thought of circumcision when it didn't represent what it ought to, namely submission to the covenant promises of God. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time, you Gentiles, were at that time, and now he lists off the problems, separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, number two, strangers to the covenants of promise, number three, having no hope, number four, and without God in the world. Now that... Is serious and it's not just a perception on the part of Jews. That's the way it really was when Christ came into the world because God had by and large passed over the nations, it says in Acts 14, as he was preparing Israel to be the birthplace of a Messiah who would then go to all the nations and all the ethnic groups. So there is a real division between God and Gentiles, and between Gentiles and Jews, so you get this way. There's a there's a problem, and this way, there's a problem, and that's going to be both of those are going to be dealt with here in this paragraph that I set off in the middle. But but I'm going to skip that paragraph, which is the ground. Of everything, uh, well, no, no, I should have divided it a little differently. But now, so you were separated, but now Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were afar off, that's what all of this is saying, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's where I should have, I should divide the text right there. Because right at that point, he starts explaining how it is that those who were far So this is the far situation here, are brought near. This is the near situation down here. So let's read the near. What's the result of the blood of Christ and how it works right here? So then, verse 19, you are no longer strangers. So now you've got a massive reversal of what was just described up here separate from God, no longer strangers, no longer aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints, God's household. And I think we'll just leave the rest of it. Just stop right there. So verse 19 repeats, verse 13, brought near. You who once were formerly far off have been brought near You are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints. So here's the giant question. What happened between verse 13 and verse 19 to reverse this massive alienation between God and Gentiles and Jews and Gentiles? And that's where we're going to run into the law. So let's read what happened. What did God do? to break down the wall that existed this way to separate God from Gentiles and the wall this way to separate Gentiles and Jews. What did he do? Well, it says here he, he brought them near. He brought these Gentiles who were way off this way near. And if we ask near to what or whom, I think the answer is God and believing Jews. He brought them near, how? By the blood of Christ. We're going to see that at least two other times, that the death of Jesus was the key thing. So I've preached on this twice now in a row. I've used different texts and different language, but what I've said the last two Martin Luther King Sundays in January is racial harmony is a blood thing. It's not a peripheral social thing, like we do theology around the cross and then some people get involved in social things. This is a atonement thing. It's a death of Christ thing. It's at the center, evidently. So by the blood of Christ, they were brought near for he himself is our peace. Christ is our peace. Now there again, you got to ask. What? Peace horizontally with group and group or peace vertically, God and group. And I think this whole text is predicated on both. I'll try to show that as we as we go. In fact, I'm going to argue that it's the removal of the vertical enmity that enables the horizontal enmity to be overcome. If you get it reversed, it'll never work. Not in the church anyway, I don't think. Who made both groups into one. Made both groups into one. And broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. That's what we were singing about. That wasn't just cute, clever, bump bouncy song. That was radically biblical theology. The wall come down. It's already been destroyed in the cross. So realize it's destruction in community. So he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Now, what is it? by abolishing in his flesh the enmity. There again, you got enmity just like peace is kind of hanging. Is it enmity between God and man or enmity between Jew and Gentile, between groups? And the answer is both. In his flesh the enmity, which is the law. Let's make sure you see this. He broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which, what's that which referred to? The enmity. Which is the law. The thing that preserved, kindled, sustained the enmity between God and man is law. And between man and man is law. And God, in Christ, by his blood, abolishes The enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. So you've got this radical statement that makes the phone ring off the hook. As I said on Sunday, when you say things like that, abolish the law. Romans 3.31 says, do we then abolish the law through faith? No, we establish the law. It's the same word. So you guys say, hmm, in some sense, the law is established through the cross and justification by faith alone, apart from works of the law. And in some sense, the law is abolished. This is why we'll be working on this for a while, because it's not at first glance easy to grasp. How Paul conceives of the law. But here we're on to abolishing. He's abolishing the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. So that in himself he might make the two, Jew and Gentile, one new man. Now the reason this is so relevant for us is because if that's true, the assumption is That church should not settle for the homogeneous unit principle. That is, that Bethesda Baptist Church, five doors down, and Bethlehem Baptist Church ought not settle for them being all black and us being all white. There may be cultural reasons for why they might be mainly black and we might be mainly white. But if it's just pure, you know, at 720 or whatever, we're 720, 13th. We don't have a number that way, but, you know, 100 yards apart, you got a wall here. That's just not, I don't think that reflects this reality. Now, there's an assumption there, and I admit, we can talk about this. The assumption, I mean, a lot of people think, that's okay. They're reconciled to God. You're friends with them. We're reconciled to God. They're friends with us. Fine. Black churches, white churches, No problem. Well, if that's your view, then uh, you don't have as much of a problem as I do because I want our church not to take over that church and make it white, but to be more reflective of our city so that when the angels look down and the world looks in and little children look up, there's, a, there's something being communicated here about this text visually. Personally, I feel a burden about that. And uh, we can talk about whether I should feel a burden about that uh, or not, but I do. And I think a lot of others do, too. So, the one new man, the one new man is created and needs to be reflected somehow in real life in the church. Because that's a Christian reality. Yes, Thus establishing peace. We want peace in the church. We need it and might reconcile them both in one body to God. Now, that's my answer to why I took this peace and this enmity and this strangers to be both from God and from each other. Because what's happening here in the cross is a reconciliation, not just between groups, but they both in one body. There's the reconciliation of men to God. There's the reconciliation with God through the cross and the cross does both. And the destruction of the law in however that's destroyed does both. The cross, by it having put to death the enmity, which is defined as the law. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So... The cross and the death of Christ in some way that we need to articulate abolishes the law of commandments contained in ordinances which reconciles us to God when we trust him and are in the spirit coming to him and separates man from man. So here's my my closing questions. Got a few minutes more. Um, How does the law separate I think, it's, I think it's, well, maybe it's not. How does the law separate from God? And how does the law separate from man from man? Um, let me see if I can answer, answer those in a, in a kind of summary form. And, and you can think about it some more and we'll talk about it. But I'll close by trying to answer those couple of questions. From God. It stirs up. Rebellion in fallen human nature, not faith. Now, that was a sermon on Romans 7, 5. It's when, when the law meets unregenerate man, unborn again man, it doesn't quicken faith. It quickens insubordination. Man, don't tell me what to do. I hate the law. Romans 8, 7. Those who are in the flesh do not submit to God's law. Indeed, they cannot. The unregenerate heart doesn't get turned on by the law. The spirit stirs up faith, not the law. So the law functioning purely by itself, without the spirit, doing something in my heart apart from the law, doesn't produce faith, it produces rebellion. And so it keeps me away from God or another way to put it would be Galatians 3.21 if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then life would be through the law but a law wasn't given which is able to impart life Romans 3.21. So that's my answer to the question why the law would be viewed as enmity between God and man because it, it, it stirs up sin and rebellion and preserves enmity and another thing has to happen called the Holy Spirit moving in, awakening and causing to be reborn the heart causing the heart to be reborn so that it feels conviction by the law turns to Christ, finds forgiveness and reconciliation to God. Now, how does it separate man from man? How does the law separate man from man if that's the way it separates us from God? Uh, Here I divided the law into ceremonial laws and moral laws. Ceremonial circumcision you can see it right there in verse 11 is separating them they're pointing their finger uncircumcised we leave that separates so the ceremonial laws were functioning to separate groups as they pointed their finger uh... other examples would be the food laws daniel one eight. soon as daniel undertakes not to eat he's separate not going to eat those things not going to drink those things so daniel separated off or galatians 2.12 Paul gets in Peter's face and he said, before those Judaizers came up here, you were eating with the Gentiles. And here they come and you separate. Why? Ham. That's why. Ham. Unkosher foods. So I'm not going to eat those because I get in trouble with those strict Jews. So it separates. The, the ceremonial law pushes apart. Another example is... is uh, Peter gets this vision in chapter 10 of the book of Acts of all these unclean animals. that come down out of the sky and a voice from heaven says, rise, eat. Now, what what the voice really means is get ready to go meet Cornelius in his unclean house. That's what it means. And Peter says, no way. I've never eaten anything unclean. And the voice says, don't you call unclean what I cleanse. If I cleanse a pig, eat a pig. If I cleanse a Gentile, love a Gentile. That's the point of that, that parable. So these laws, these ceremonial laws, were separating people. What about the moral law? Have you ever thought about someone? Blessed is the man who walks not... In the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. He's separate because he meditates on the law of the Lord. and He's righteous and not ungodly, and he separates out. And that's okay. The moral law of God pushes apart like that. Or Psalm 26, 4. I do not sit with deceitful men. So, I think both moral and ceremonial laws pushed people apart some appropriate ways, some very inappropriate ways. Now the question is, drawing to a close, um, in what sense does this law, these laws get abolished? Or, to use the Roman 7 language, in what sense do uh, you die to the law? Now, you who are here tonight get some advanced summary statements that I'm moving toward in the sermons on Sunday morning. Let me try to just close with summary statements that I'll be working to support and show from Romans and Galatians, especially. We die to the law, number one, as a means of justification. When the law presents itself as that which you perform in order to get right with God, you got to die to that. It has to die to you. You can abolish that that law. Law as a means of law keeping to get right with God. You can't get right with God that way. All you can do is go deeper into debt with God that way. Because you're a sinner and you can never show yourself righteous enough by law keeping to be accepted by God. Number two, we die to it. This is a little more complicated, so listen carefully. As a first and primary approach. To shape our will and action, the actions of our bodies. In other words, I'm not too quick to bring the law in as the primary instrument of sanctification. I don't think it's the primary instrument of sanctification. Even after you get justified. I think it's a secondary instrument of sanctification after the primary one, namely what? Who? the Spirit, that we not serve in the oldness of the letter, but the newness of the Spirit. It's the Spirit that is the first and primary approach. So as as I, as a justified sinner, enjoy my right standing with God, and now I want to conform my life to Jesus, what do I do? With I don't run to the list and make my primary method of becoming good law-keeping my primary method is first go to god the reality the living savior the holy spirit and say oh change me fill me transform me and i do that in and by the word but i stressed to the staff when we were way on a retreat that when you open your bible whether old or new testament your eyes ought to go right through the word to the events of the cross and through the events of the cross to the person of Jesus Christ coming to you by the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit transforms and enables you to use word without it becoming letter or killing you or legalism. The Spirit is the key. So death to the law is death to it as a means of justification and death to it as a primary means of sanctification. But a secondary one. Why do you have to die to the law? Because Christ comes to you as your righteousness. The law keeping isn't your righteousness that, that gives you a right standing with God. And secondly, Christ comes to you as your internal shaper, of your heart and mind, He comes as the Holy Spirit, as a person, not as do's and don'ts first, but as reality and relationship first. And I summed it up like this. If justification is through the law, Christ died in vain. And if sanctification is first and primarily through the law, He rose in vain and became the Spirit in your life in vain. Because if you're going to say, my first and primary means of Living a godly life is conforming to what's written on a page. You have nullified the Holy Spirit's work in your life. First and primary means of sanctification is trust in the living Christ, which is why that amazing statement in Romans 7, 4, we must die to the law so that we might be married to another, to him who rose from the dead. Actually, it says to belong to, but in the context of the analogy of marriage with verses 1 to 3, it's marriage. You can't marry the living Christ if you constantly are orienting on lists any more than I can really marry Noel if at the at the wedding ceremony, I don't look into her face and want her. I look into a book on marriage and want to keep those rules. Okay, I should stop. So there's Sunday morning. Now, I I hope you just I just given you a flavor for how Sunday morning's issues in Romans are relating to the very center of what reconciles us to God and what reconciles us to each other. If you can get right with God and that enmity is overcome, then the enmity here is going to fall down as well. And I think Paul would say you can't have one without the other. Which is probably why people like John Perkins and others say it's a gospel issue. Reconciliation and harmony among races is a gospel issue. My interpretation, my biblical interpretation of that is, if you remain hostile, suspicious, prejudiced, racist, this way, horizontally, you've got a questionable relation this way because the enmity that separates this way and the enmity that separates this way is one in this text. It's just one. There aren't two enmities. It's just one word. Let's pray. Father, I, th- I thank you for these friends who are working with me on this. Have mercy upon us. Keep us patient with one another. Help us to grow in how the center of the gospel relates to these things. And as the practical implications become a little more complex in a church, between churches, in society, and justice issues give us even more patience because their disagreements will abound and there'll be political differences and application differences. So, Lord, you test us every week every way by how we love each other as we work these things through. So come and bless us. May this be good for us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.